unless I feel the Lord kind of leading me differently, we're probably actually going to finish up chapter 4 next Sunday, but roll into 5 and, and probably do the end of chapter 4 and the first five verses of chapter 5 next week. But you can be reading all of, all of chapter 5, and we'll touch on that then. But just the first six verses of 1 John chapter 4 this week. Let me start in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater Than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever does not, whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray one more time. Father, please open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. We pray that this time together would be profitable. Uh, God, and we just ask that you have your way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, pretty straightforward this morning um, in terms of the, the big idea or the main idea of these, of these uh, verses that I just read, and that is I just want to talk about the importance and centrality of discernment in the life of the local church. Um, and we're primarily going to look at two different things. Number one, why we need discernment, or as he puts it here, this ability to test the spirits. And then secondly, how to do it. Now, the text gives us several, or, or at least two reasons, the text itself gives us, gives us two reasons why we need to be discerning, why we need to learn to test the spirits. But um, I also want to start off here with just giving us another reason why we need to learn to obey this passage. Um, and test the spirits, or again, I'm going to be using the word discernment a lot today. And the reason is this, is that the reason we need to learn to be discerning is because, folks, if I could just shoot straight with you, we're not good at this. We're, and, and by not good, I mean really bad. <laughs> Terrible? Horrible? By we, I mean I mean. America in general, the church in America in general, you know, we, we are always a little bit of bias, we're always a little bit biased towards ourselves, maybe we're a little better here, but I would say this as a pastor of Mercy Hill, um, we can grow a lot in this. Um, it is important that we are able to discern truth from error. One of the primary reasons why I think we're bad at it is because as a culture, the spoken or unspoken thing that we tend to value above almost everything else is just niceness. Niceness. And so if you correct anybody um, or if you rebuke them, as the Bible says, or if you call them out, uh, you're, you're unloving. You're not, you're not tolerant. You're a hater. I mean, I don't know. You fill in the blank with what people might say. And we have such a desire in us to please everybody that we gobble up all sorts of error that is extremely detrimental. And that's not even strong enough. It's deadly. False doctrine is deadly. Okay? Um, and one of the things that that we need to understand is that it's not possible to be loving in a mature way without being discerning. So many of us have this this false dichotomy in our minds and the way that we think that you either need to be a truth-loving person, a discerning person, a, a doctrinally accurate person, or you can be a loving person. That's not true. We We want to be loving, and therefore we also want to be discerning, okay? To teach your kid 
not to avoid the shady guy in the white unmarked van by the road handing out lollipops to youngsters is not loving. You want to teach your kids to be discerning. You want to teach them what to, what to watch out for. And in the same way, um, throughout the New Testament and the letters, especially of, of uh, the apostles and others writing to the local church to help them be healthy, is a call to be discerning. Uh, or as he puts it here, to be able to test the spirits. Now, what's interesting in this, this book of, uh, or this epistle of 1 John, is that this call here in verses 1 through 6 to be discerning and to test the spirits is sandwiched between these passages on love. On love. If you'll notice the end of chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 16, by this we know that uh, love that he laid down his life for us. Verse 17, uh, that God's love abides in him. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but also in truth. I mean, you go to chapter 4, and we'll probably look at a lot of this next week, but just read the first couple verses here, uh, chapter 4, like verse 7, 8, and 9. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and, and God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, In this is love. In this is the love of God manifest to us. Um, we, we have to be able to put these things together, is all I'm saying. We, we have to have a grid for knowing truth and also being loving and understand that knowing and sharing and standing for the truth is itself an act of love. To let ourselves or to let other people be deceived is not, is not loving. Now, getting into the text, let me look first of all, and again, it's a pretty simple outline this morning in talking about the importance and centrality of discernment in the local church is just why we need it, and then we'll, I'll try to spend the majority of the time on how, on how we do it, okay, um, and, and given some practical questions to ask. But first, let's look at the why that John gives us. Number one, <coughs> in the text, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's just not, well, you know, try this if you want to. It is a command. Verse one, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Do you do that? Or do you just gobble up everything that comes at you? Well, the guy said Jesus, so it must be okay. Do not believe every spirit, command, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Not every spirit is from God. Jesus said this, he said, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, or therefore, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I mean, think about that. Sheep are like popcorn to wolves, right? We're just sending them out and Jesus said, this is what it is. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So another reason we need to do it is that it's commanded as disciples of Jesus Christ. This is something that we have to embrace. But then another reason John gives us is there's a lot at stake. There is a lot at stake in discerning the truth. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they have come from God. For, why? For many, not just a few, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay? And if you jump down here uh, and, and listen to what he says, look at verse 3. Um, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of what? The Antichrist. I don't think you could use stronger language to try to, light, to try to light a fire under the people of God than what John is doing here. Is that not just a few, many false prophets. I'm not just suggesting it, I'm commanding it. And here's the deal, that these false spirits, they're ultimately the spirit of Antichrist. Are you with me? I know that this is, this is kind of some heavy stuff, but this is something that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called not to just retreat from because ah, I, don't really, I don't really like that and I just want to be friends with everybody and we need to lean into it. We need to stand for the truth, understand that throughout history, people have died for the truth. Jesus himself was the embodiment of the truth and he gave his life for it. And we as his disciples must do the same. So those are the reasons why. Now, let's get to, and this is where I'll spend the majority of the time, is talking about 
how we do it. How do we discern the spirits? How do we test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God, okay? First of all, big picture, okay? We're going to go broad and then we're going to get down into some kind of narrow categories. But first of all, you have to be strong in what you might call Christology. Christology. Now, that's just the term the theologians use to talk about Jesus, the study of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, who he was, Christology. You have to have a biblical Christology. You have to know the real Jesus. Remember I said last week, John ends his letter, the last thing he says is this, is this sentence, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And if you weren't here last week, I'll, I'll say it again. John's emphasis in this whole thing is talking about the real Jesus because there are many false Jesuses, false Christs, false doctrine that's coming from the mouths of false teachers, ultimately from a false spirit of Antichrist. Okay? And so we need to know the real Jesus and what they say about Jesus. Here's the test that John gives. Now, on the surface... This seems extremely simple and like there's not much here, but John gives us in a very compact seed form a lot of actually really big ideas that you can find throughout the rest of the New Testament, but he gives it to us in a very concise package here in verse 2. Verse 2, look at it. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. So how do we know? Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So notice, first of all, like I said, you've got to have a solid Christology. He's talking about Jesus and who he is. And let's just kind of look at this. Again, I'm going to give you some broad questions and then kind of some specific questions. So imagine that you're going out to buy a car. You know, you see the car. The first thing you're going to do is kind of walk around it, see if there's any rust, see if there's any dings in it, maybe kick the tires a little bit. I don't ever really know what that does, but they say you should do that, kick the tires, make sure they don't fall off, I guess. I don't know. But we're going to do some of that. But then I'm going to give you some more specific questions where we kind of lift the hood. We ask for, you know, do they have a record of an oil change or whatever? Uh, We might have our mechanic check it out, and we'll get under the hood a little bit more in a little bit. But here is the first question that we should ask, okay? A broad question. Number one, does this, does this teaching or teacher exalt the work of Christ or the work of man? Does it exalt Christ or does it exalt man? Now, big picture here, you can come back to this over and over and over again. Every false teaching, all false teaching, no matter what it is, here's what it ultimately does, is it lowers the holiness of God, and it minimizes the sinfulness of man. The the testimony of Scripture is that God is holy. It's John's testimony in this book. In him is light, and there is no darkness at all. All false teaching is always going to minimize the holiness of God, make what Christ did a little less than what it was, and we're going to exalt the glory of man. Like, we're not just, we're just not quite as sinful as what the Bible might say. But biblically speaking, those two things, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, apart from the work of Christ, could not be at further ends of the spectrum, okay? And so know that that's always what's going on. And in all teaching, I want you to be asking the question, does this exalt Christ or does it exalt man? And remember here, What's the option? Either it's true teaching that's exalting Christ or it's false teaching and this is the spirit of what? The spirit of antichrist, resistant to Christ. Behind every false doctrine is a demon, a false demon. Paul speaks of doctrines of demons in his letter to Timothy. And again, I know this is heavy stuff, but we are not playing games with it. And again, I would propose that most of us take this way, 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 way too lightly. And it's one of the reasons why we don't really feel bad about really not reading our Bible that much or digging into the truth. It's also one of the reasons that we're deceived. But Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. So where you find yourself walking in bondage, folks, I'm telling you, this matters and it matters a lot. And every single one of us here, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we are disciples. Disciple means learner. We are all on a path of learning the way of Jesus is found in his word, the real Christ, biblical Christology. 
But that's the first question. Does it simply does it exalt Christ or does it exalt man? Secondly, is the teaching explicit about Jesus? This is one I, I, could, I could rant on this for the next 40 minutes. This drives me absolutely nuts, but I'm only going to spend like two minutes on it, okay? And that is, is in the church, we, and I don't know who first coined this phrase. It's been throw, thrown around a lot. But one of the things that we gobble up in the church today is what somebody once called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a lot of good stuff. It's, it's, not, it's not bad. This is where I, I, I go on rants sometimes about all these like, like kind of general like leadership principles. Hear me, not bad. I'm not saying they're false. But let me just say something that should be obvious to us. Is that nothing is Christian if it's not explicit about Christ. Right? And so I don't have a problem with this teaching in and of itself. And yes, it can help you in business and do different things like that. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we are here to worship him. To worship him. That what, that's what it's about. But instead, we gobble up this moralistic, therapeutic deism, teach me how to be successful, give me some nice little life application principles that I can apply on Monday so I can just make my life work so that I can make it go better. When the Bible calls us as a church to proclaim the living Christ who died for us and is now risen from the dead, and that all, our, all of our life should be consumed with worshiping him by sharing the gospel, by loving each other and laying down our lives for one another, and not just for people in the church, but for those who have never heard. That is the mission that he's given us to accomplish. And, and so no teaching is explicit. I don't care. Again, they might not say anything bad. It's, it's, it's morals. And then th- the therapeutic part, it makes us feel good about ourselves, that we're getting a little bit better. And then deism, we just kind of sprinkle God in there. And we say, well, this is Christian teaching. What makes it Christian? I didn't hear anything about Jesus. And you should be saying the same thing. If it does not mention Christ and does not exalt him, then it is not Christian teaching. Now, <clears throat> are you still with me? Good? Okay. Because we're just getting rolling. Because if I haven't offended you yet, I, I might start to. Fair warning. Conrad locked the doors in the back. But let's press a little bit, and, and, I, and I'm just going to show a little bit about how this works out in our life, because this is not distant from us, okay? Um, you can find many clips like this, quotes like this. I, I, I don't want to spend, I was talking to another pastor last night, he was asking what I was preaching on, and I, I told him this, and I just said, man, there is no lack of content for the examples of false heretical teaching that's out there. Um, But in 2007, Chris Wallace, uh, Fox News anchor at that time, I don't know if he still is or not, um, asked Joel Olstein, pastor of probably the largest church in America, if not, he's probably in the top five or something like that. He asked him if Mormons are uh, Christians. And he goes, what about Mitt Romney? Mitt Romney is a Mormon. Is he a true Christian? Joel Olstein, his response, quote, well, in my mind they are. Mitt Romney has said that he believes in Christ as his Savior, and so that's what I believe. So, you know, I'm not the one to judge the little details of it all, so I believe that they are. Now, you may not be aware of this. I'm not twisting anything. You can find this on websites that Mormons themselves put up. Mormons believe that Jesus Christ is a created being and the half-spirit brother of Lucifer. Light and darkness cannot go together. Okay? Now I could, listen, Joel Olstein, that's low-hanging fruit. Okay? Let, let me say something else too, okay? Because this might be, we might be here a while this morning. Um, let me say this too. How many of you were offended? Well, don't raise your hand. But let me press on something. Were you offended that I just named a name? Were you offended that I used the name Joel? So you're going to be offended that I call out some other people? The Bible says in Romans chapter 16 that we are to mark false teachers. That we are to mark them. We're to, it's literally keep an eye on them. Now, one of the things that, that we'll get to here, but let me say it now 
is that there's a difference between misguided sheep and wolves. There are many people in the church that I believe are Christians, they're truly born again, but they are misguided sheep. And for them, what do you do with a misguided sheep? You care for it, you tend for it, you want to keep it away from the wolves. But do you know what you do with wolves? You take them out. You mark them. You mark them so that they do not prey, because wolves prey on the misguided sheep. Are you with me? And so you got to have those categories, uh, but it is absolutely not unloving to name names. Paul named names. Read some of his letters. I don't know how you mark people without calling them out at times. Um, So let's get to some specific questions about Christ. Because again, on the surface, verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And, And on the surface you're like, well yeah, I mean, Joel Olstein, everybody, everybody says Jesus. I mean, isn't that all it's saying? No, there's, there, there's, there's more than that. Three things that we should be asking and examining, and we're looking under the hood now in regards to what they say about Christ. What do they say about his divinity? What do they say about his eternality? And what do they say about his humanity? I'll say those again. What do they say about his divinity, his eternality, And his humanity. Number one, his divinity. Jesus is God. Okay? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, you understand, Christ is not a surname. It's not his last name. It's not like Joe Yoder, Eric Miller, Luke Skywalker. It's not that. It's it's a title. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, means the anointed one. It's It's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word Messiah. Okay, And while David, for example, and others were at times an anointed one, they were anointed for a specific task to be king or to be a prophet or whatever in the Old Testament, Jesus is the anointed one. Okay, And the title Christ is always tied in with his divinity. If you just go back a couple verses into the end of chapter into the end of uh, chapter three, and along with his divinity, it's, it's tied in with him being God's son. Okay? Chapter three. Uh, Verse 23, and this is the commandment that we are to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has uh, commanded. Um, In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, he says, But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. Some people will say that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. That is an absolute lie. He absolutely declared that he was God. That's the primary thing that he did when he came. He declared himself to be God. In Mark chapter 14, again, that that people um, saw that to be the Christ was to be God's son and was to be God himself in the flesh. Um, Here, Jesus being examined after he's been arrested before the high priest, uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And so they go ahead and they arrest him because Jesus declared openly that he was God's Son, the Son of the Blessed, it said, the Christ. Okay? What do they say about his divinity? And I'll tell you some ways in a little bit that they deny this. But the second question to ask, what do they say about his eternality? Now this overlaps with his divinity, okay? To deny, uh, to accept his divinity, but to deny his eternality, meaning that he existed, he never had a beginning. He is very God of very God. He has always existed. What do they say about that? Notice the little phrase here in verse two. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come, has come. You are here this morning, and you're here in this building because you've come from somewhere else. Jesus Christ was not created. He came from heaven 
to earth. He has existed in all of eternity past. This is one of the primary things that John hammers again and again and again in his writings. Going back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We've quoted this passage many times. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now false teachers will twist that, that language there being the firstborn saying, saying see Jesus was, was born, he was created. Firstborn is not speaking in, in terms of like chronology uh, um, but in terms of uh, status and preeminence. To be the firstborn son back in the day, was that you got the majority of, of the birthright of the family. When it's speaking of Christ as the firstborn of all creation, it's that he is the preeminent one. And that should be obvious from the passage because Paul goes on here in that same passage. He says, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. He, he's the creator for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is language that you would use only for God. Jesus is God. That's the point. Even back, just one more here quickly, the very beginning of this epistle that John is writing. John was an apostle. They saw Jesus when he came in the flesh and he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus is divine and he is eternal. He has never had a beginning. False teachers will always try to mess with this. Third, what do they say about his humanity? He is truly God, and he is truly man. And here's why people always mess with these things, because we just can't seem to put them together because it's a mystery to us, and I acknowledge that it's a mystery to us. The, the theological term or language or, uh, or, or just word that people use for this is the hypostatic union, the, the divinity and his humanity, he was truly both. He was truly both. Um, in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Then he says this, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's truly God and truly man. And again, I should have showed you where I get this here in 1 John verse 2, but it's the most obvious one. That Jesus Christ, divinity, has come his eternality in the flesh. He added to his divinity, humanity, without ever ceasing to be God. This is one of the earliest um, heresies that the early church uh, had to refute. The Athanasian Creed, and this is just part of it, but early on, one of the earliest creeds from church history says this, It is necessary for eternal salvation that one also faithfully believe that our Lord Jesus became flesh. For this is the true faith that we believe and confess, that our Lord Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, Christ, God's Son, is both God and man. He is God, begotten before all worlds from the being of the Father, and he is man, born in the world from the being of his mother, existing fully as God and fully as man, with a rational soul and human body, equal to the Father in divinity, subordinate to the Father in humanity. Although he is God and man, he is not divided, but is one Christ." He is united because God has taken humanity into himself. He does not transform deity into humanity. He is completely one in the unity of his person without confusing his natures. You think, Eric, who cares? I want to tell you something, folks. Men literally gave their lives for the truth 
of who Jesus Christ is throughout history. And many times we take doctrinal things like this and we go, eh, who cares? Tell me how to steward my money better in my business on Monday morning. And I'm not saying that's not important, and I'm not saying that that can't be honoring and glorifying to God. But what I'm saying is what you confess about Jesus Christ really matters. And throughout history, God's people have literally shed their blood to testify to the truth of who he is. A few questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 16, why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Answer, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin, and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. Question 17, why must he in one person be also very God? Answer, that he might be the power that by the power of his Godhead sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18, who then is that mediator who is the one person, both very God and a real righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Amen? And here's what it all comes down to. Here's a summary question, okay? Out of, those, out of those three specific questions, what do they say about his divinity, his eternality, and his humanity? Here's the summary question. Is Jesus Christ in a category all by himself? All by himself. There is nobody like him. Nobody. Ever. He is God. He is our king. He is our Lord. He is our savior. Every human being owes him their life. And their allegiance. He does not just suggest that you repent and believe in the gospel. He commands it. He commands it. And it is the only way to be saved through Jesus Christ. Now, you're like, Eric, I just don't know, but does that really matter? How does that help me discern false teaching? Well, you need to listen carefully sometimes. Hear me. I am not wanting you to go out. Here, here's one of the things, if I can just give a little aside here for a second, that as a pastor, I, I'm not against naming names, of, as I've already said. However, one of the things that I know will inevitably happen is that as I list names, you guys will go listen to the false teachers just to like kind of check them out and hear the weirdness that they're saying. I, you don't need to handle the snake and toss it around to know that it's poisonous. Okay, I'm telling you that it's poisonous. However, as you hear things, you need to be discerning, okay? Um, let me g quote a couple other guys. Um, again, pretty basic, like these guys aren't even sneaky. It's pretty low-hanging fruit. Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland, uh, all over. T he's kind of like from the old school. He's kind of like the old guard, prosperity, word of faith movement. Let, let me give you a couple quotes from Kenneth Copeland. He says, I say this with all respect so that it don't upset you too bad, but I say it anyway. When I read in the Bible where Jesus says, I am, I just smile and say, ah, yes, I am too. Now this is something, I should have said this before I got into the quotes here, but one of the things that the word of faith movement, which many times goes along almost always with prosperity, gospel teaching, along with another term, uh, it's, just, it's just repackaged word of faith movement, is something called the New Apostolic Reformation. It's a little bit more, that's kind of like the new school version of it. Um, one of the things that they all teach is some form of the kenosis heresy. And I'll, I'll, I'll unpack what that is in a, in a little bit, but, well, let me just do it now. It's in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, it talks about how Christ came and it says, verse 6, was in the form of God, yet did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That word for emptied is the Greek word kanao, and it's where you get the word kenosis. It's this idea of emptying. And what they teach is, is that Christ lived on this earth and actually laid aside his divinity and just lived his life as a man filled with the Spirit. Now, the reason that matters and the reason that they jack with that and they mess with it is, is because then it gives them an open door to say, see, I do the same things that Jesus did in regards to healing and greatness, and to the place where then they also have something called the little God's theology, and they twist the scripture that says we're created in the image of God, and they teach it to mean that we ourselves are a God. And some of them, they all believe this on varying levels. Some of them are just more blatant about it, like Kenneth Copeland. 
But let me give you some more Kenneth Copeland quotes. And again, um, I'll give you some other names here briefly, but like some of the new school guys, they all love Kenneth Copeland. Um, Here's another one from Kenneth Copeland. He says, on the cross, Jesus won the right for believers to be born again back into the God class. Adam was created not subordinate to God, but as a God. He lost it, and in Christ, we are taken back to the God class. And if that's not clear enough for you, in another place he says, and I quote, you don't have a God in you, you are one. And just to be clear, in case you don't know, folks, you, I, I, I want to say there's nothing short of blasphemous. You cannot get more blasphemous than that. You cannot get more blasphemous than that. Oh, Eric, I'm not listening to Kenneth Copeland. Do you listen to Todd White? Todd White calls Kenneth Copeland his spiritual father and mentor. Um, Todd White, in regards to this same teaching, says that, and this is just a partial quote, but he's talking about the same thing. He says, this puts you on par with Jesus because he came as a man. And again, they're all messing with this thing where Jesus, they'll, they'll, they don't deny that he was divine, but they deny that he lived on earth as God. He was truly God and truly man. He never for one millisecond has ever ceased to be God. Ever. I mean, and this is the most straightforward, basic stuff that you, could, you should know in having a solid biblical Christology. I mean, even in the Christmas story, he comes, and Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay? Um, Remember, I said all false teaching is always going to bring Christ down and lift man up. Todd White says this, The cross isn't just the revelation of my sin, it's the revealing of my value. Something underneath of that sin must have been of great value for heaven to go bankrupt to get me back. Heresy. Absolute heresy. Blasphemy. Grace is unmerited. There was nothing of value in us that Christ died for us. This is what makes it amazing grace. Amen? If you think he was getting a deal when he bought you, you don't understand grace. Does God love us as his children? Yes, in his grace and his mercy, he assigned value to us. But it wasn't that we were already valuable. It was that the blood of Christ, the most valuable thing in all the earth, in all the universe, rather, was shed and purchased us. And we gain our value from the value of Christ, not the other way around. But their teaching will always bring Christ down Minimize what he did and exalt man. Um, on the other side of that, quote from John Piper, in re, I don't think this was specifically in, re, in refuting Todd White's quote that I just gave you, um, but it works. He says, The Bible does not portray the cross of Christ as a display of the prior value. What he per, pri, of the prior value of what he purchased by it. Just the opposite. The cross is a display of the hopeless, undeserving, dirty, sinful, guilty, rebellious, corrupted condition of the people who were purchased. The magnitude of Christ's sufferings is a measure not of the magnitude of my worth, but the magnitude of the ugliness of my sin and the outrage of my rebellion and the infinite value of the glory of God that my sin has defamed. Do you hear the difference? And, and, and when I say, if I can back up, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean, okay? I love you. But I have had people tell me, I'll be like, hey, what's, what's going on in your life right now? Like, what are you reading? What are you studying? What's going on? Oh, I've been reading this one book by John Piper, and, I, and I've also been listening to some Todd White. 
Now hear me, I, I don't, you know, I'm not here to just promote the John Piper camp or some other camp, or, but like those things don't go together. The, the truth of God's word and the prosperity gospel do not go together. Another thing that prosperity preachers in the Word of Faith movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, will always do is they will say that they have this ability to speak things into being. And they'll use this verse in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. They'll say, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now it's very emphatic that God is the one that does that. God speaks things forth that were not as though they were, which is how the King James says it. But again, in their little God's doctrine, they twist it and say, well, I am a God, so I can do the same thing. That is not true. That is false. It's false. It's absolutely not true. Jesus Christ is the only sovereign ruler of the universe. So in summary, is Jesus Christ in a category all of his own? That's by far the most important questions you need to ask about Jesus. Is he divine? Is he eternal? And was he also truly human? That he could be our substitute? And why exactly did we need a substitute? So that God God could get us on his team or because our sin cost that much? couple more quick ones, okay? We'll begin to, to wrap up. But another question to ask, just simply this, is the teaching worldly? How do you discern false teaching? How do you discern false spirits? Is the teaching worldly? Look at verse five. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. When the world is gobbling it up, it's worldly. It's a sign that it's not from God. If you go back to chapter two, verses 15 and 17, what does he, well, what do you mean by the world? Who's the world? Verse 15 of chapter two, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. One of the things they'll always talk about is money and promoting money. And that you can, you can be rich if you just speak it forth, if you just name it and claim it, however they might say it. It's worldly. Another question to ask, do they acknowledge apostolic and biblical authority? Now here's another way they'll twist this, and I don't have time to go into all this, but they'll call themselves apostles. And they'll say that their word or their teaching has the same authority of Scripture. That is absolutely not true. The, the, the canon of Scripture is closed. We still live by apostolic authority as found in the New Testament. The church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and the apostles. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, the Bible says in Ephesians. This is, uh, and it, so when he says here in verse 6, he says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Now I think in, that's, it's true of all Christians that true Christians, true believers, yes, they're going to they're listen to us or, or they're not if they're false. But, but what he's, I think the us there is really emphasizing going back to the very beginning of the letter and that passage I just read. He, John is asserting his apostolic authority in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Let me just read it again, although I've read these verses already this morning. But that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim it to you. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, we were there. We were apostles. We saw him. We touched him. We saw him die on the cross. We saw him rise from the dead. This is what he taught. John is asserting apostolic authority where false teachers will always say that their word is somehow on par with scripture. That is absolutely not true. It's not true. We are a people under the authority of the word of God. And anything that anyone ever says is to be tested by the scriptures. Okay? That's why we must be students of it. That's why we must be true disciples, learners of the word of God. And many times they too will manipulate the Spirit and say, well, the Spirit told me, so, you know, that doesn't matter. The Spirit just let me. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures. 
The Spirit, whatever the Spirit leads you to do, allegedly, will never contradict the Scriptures, ever. Another false dichotomy that we have between the Word and the Spirit. There's actually a book written by, well, I won't say his name, whatever, but it's called uh, The Promised Power. And, uh, he, and, and the whole gist of this book is he, he talks about that there's some word people and there's spirit people. And there's people that are more adept in the word and people that are more adept in the spirit. The, that's a false dichotomy. You want to be filled with the spirit? Read the Bible. The spirit inspired this. It's pretty good. It makes much of Jesus. Okay. Um, does that make sense? That was, I had a lot of notes here this morning, and then I just kind of got into it, and I was like, oh, this could go anywhere. Okay. But that was fun. Let, let me give you, let me give you, and again, there, there's so much more. Oh, there's so much more. There's so many more terrible quotes. Blasphemous. Not even just off a little bit. Blasphemous things that they say. And here's the thing, folks. I, I really believe that just... Again, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, God, I, I believe in his providence, is over the next several weeks and months, we're going to be pressing into this. If you're like, man, I just, I wish I'd have stayed home today. Um, we're going to hit you again in a couple, because after this, we're jumping into Jude. The book of Jude, and you, you think John brings the heat, man, Jude, it's like an inspired sermon slash rant against false prophets. That's all it is. And then from there, we're going to be jumping into this series on our doctrinal statement, and we're, we're going to be pressing into this. I, I want to say something else. is that So many people have this belief that doctrine divides. Not true. Not true. Lack of doctrinal clarity divides. People want to say, well, just can't we just all be united around Jesus? Which Jesus? The real Jesus of the Bible? Or the false Jesus that Kenneth Copeland and Joel Olstein and the Mormons and Todd White preach? There's a difference. I'm not, I'm not united around that Jesus. And nor can you be. We need to know the real Jesus. And it's like I said last week. What's the big deal if I'm off a little bit? The false Jesus, the idol Jesus, he doesn't save. He won't change you. He will not deliver you. But the real Jesus will. And I want you to know him. Okay? Um, worship team, come on up. I'll, however, just And I'm going to call them up just so that I make myself stop. But... <clears throat> One more point here in terms of like how we discern the spirits, but this one speaks more to our attitudes, okay? Here's how we should do it. With the childlike faith and confident humility of those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. With a childlike faith and confident humility. I jumped over verse four. Verse four deserves an entire sermon. In the middle of these commands, these nitty-gritty commands and this how-to, to be discerning, to test the spirits, to know how. Again, standing against the spirit of Antichrist, there is one of the most beautiful gospel promises you will find anywhere in the Bible. Here it is. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Who? These false teachers in the spirit of the Antichrist. And have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, real quick, because this is, uh, this is really um, colorful. Little children is the Greek word uh, technion. It, it's not just like little kids, although it's sometimes used that, but it's, it's more, the, more, the emphasis would be more on infants. I mean tiny little babies. Tiny little babies. And then you've got this word overcome. It's the Greek word nikeo. It's where Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, got the word Nike, the brand Nike. Nikeo, it means to conquer or victory. Or as it's quoted here, over, overcome. And then you've got this word greater. And it's the Greek, Greek word megas. It's where we get our English word mega, mega. So you've got little children who are victorious conquerors, like a conquering army, and this mega God, and, and, the, and the, the emphasis there is on that God is bigger or, great, or greater. You're like, bigger than what? Anything. Greater than what? Anything. Doesn't matter. And, and the reason this matters in all that we've talked about today is how do we go forward? What should our attitude be like? 
Our attitude should be one of little children, a childlike faith, but that we also have a confident humility. Sometimes we think that humility implies uncertainty. No, not at all. Not at all. We want to be humble, but I am certain that Jesus Christ wins. I'm certain that Jesus Christ has won and has done everything that needs to be done. We, were, we touched on this verse a little bit Wednesday night at small church, and it was, it was cool. I thought it was cool. I think the others that were there thought it was cool. Sitting outside on Zach and Katie's uh, front porch around their little picnic table, um, and Ashley was there. Is Ashley here this morning? she here? Oh, she's in the back. And she has a little uh, Dax with her. She has a little Bella. Is Bella two, Ashley? Bella's two. Dax is, what, a couple months? Six months. And she's sitting there holding him. And I was just telling him how I'd just been studying this, this word, technion, for little children. It's, and that's, it's the idea of, of, of Dax. I mean, just, he, he can't do anything. <laughs> he's little, tiny baby. And he's just sitting there. And, and, and as we're sitting there, Bella, who's two, so still very dependent but, um, but, you know, it, the drift is just always towards independence, right? So she's two, and she's, and as we're having this conversation, Ashley's holding Dax, and he can't do anything. He's just kind of hanging out there because he's just a mushy little guy. And, and Bella is over on the trampoline trying to cl- climb the steps to the trampoline, and so she's a little bit more independent, but she gets stuck. <laughs> and, like, you know, her legs are straddling the one step, and she, and she needs Katie's girls to go over and, and to lift her off. And it just so spoke to me. Because even little Bella, two years old, is moving towards wanting to be independent. Wanting to get on the trampoline all by herself. But what this scripture calls us to is to be like little Dax. Who just, Jesus, <laughs> help me. And here's the thing, that... Um, The smaller the child, the more natural the trust. Okay? We don't drift towards dependence. We tend to drift towards independence. But if we can just remember that not just here but throughout this letter, John says again and again, little children, that's us. We can have confidence that he's won the victory. Amen? Okay. Father, thanks for today. We love you. Get this into our hearts. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what you've done. Help us to be discerning. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to love the truth. Amen. Stand with